Welcome to the channel of the Wisdom of Anna. Look for the link below the video and just make sure you follow the uh, future podcasts as they come up and check that link. Uh, it'll be in the bottom of the description box. And you can check your favorite studio, including Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. But once you open the podcast link, scroll over either one of those, the Apple, Spotify, or Google button, and choose your favorite. And if you're not already listening on these platforms, you may need to adjust your volume button. I want to give a huge thank you to Kendrick K., Jesus V., and Casey Global Productions for your donations this month. So please note, PayPal has permanently suspended my account because of my content so if you are inclined to donate you may do so by donating at the alternate account that's listed in the description box or you can click on um, the buy.stripe.com and um, that's also in the bottom of the description box down below and then also if you um, bank if you have Zelle with your banking my email is purdueanna at yahoo.com but all of my information is always down below in the bottom of my description box. Also at my website, AnnaPurdue.com. I actually have a donation link, a button right there. You can click on that too. That's probably the easiest way to donate. So um, everything you ever need is going to be on my website. That's the best way to reach me, AnnaPurdue.com. So let's get started. In the most recent podcast, The World is a Stage, I had explained how China and Russia, they're not going to be the world superpower in spite of watching their steady increase in power today. But I also illustrated in the podcast, Many Faces in Time, how the European power led by Germany will, in fact, be the world superpower. And to understand this conclusion, it is important to understand the origins and the spiritual warfare taking place in the heavens and the earth. The German Empire has risen its ugly head throughout the whole of history. In future podcasts, I've been doing so much research. I'm going to have quite a few podcasts on this, giving a lot of detail in it. But I will also demonstrate how all roads lead to Semiramis and Nimrod. Speaking of Nimrod, in Revelation 13, 11 through 15, we learn the beast of the earth will appear like a lamb with two horns and will speak like a dragon. Is this the offspring of the Holy Roman Empire and the Imperator Romanorum, who was coronated on the serpent seed Nimrod's birthday? We will learn who these characters are in this podcast. That's later on. Just I'm leading up to it, though. Right now, we're going to be learning how the coming beast will bring about immeasurable deception with false miracles, possibly something that begins with project and has the color blue in the title that emits a certain beam. This beast will make a beast that represents the resurrected beast who died with a deadly wound. The beast of the earth will create an image of the resurrected beast and execute anyone who refuses to worship it. Did you know a new statue called the Giant is currently on display in 21 cities around the globe? The 10-story public art display is showcasing the giant in communities across the globe using technology to celebrate humanity. Hmm... 
It's currently being advertised as one of the world's most ambitious cultural and commercial projects, bringing together art, amusement, and wonder to create a contemporary and highly profitable business. The plan is to add this giant to new urban redevelopment projects, stadiums, arenas, shopping centers, museums, and other locations as a permanent addition to the cities where they're located. The mummy, which Egyptologists have identified as Queen Hatshepsut, is displayed at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo and is most likely the one referred to as Semiramis. Well, I disagree with this. But anyway, let me continue. So this this Hatshepsut ruled Egypt after Tutmosis' death in 1520 BC. See, the time frame doesn't line up. Her long hair and facial structure had been well-preserved by the embalming process of the time. American Egyptologist Donald Ryan excavated her tomb in the Valley of the Kings during the course of 1989. Ryan describes the mummy as follows. The mummy was mostly unwrapped and on its back. Strands of reddish-blonde hair lay on the floor beneath the head. The myths and legends of Greece, India, and South America describe the rule of Osiris and Isis. The mighty Osiris and Isis walked into the Egyptian valley out of nowhere and assumed command. They were taller and more imposing than the men of the time. and In other words, the giants with long blonde hair, marble-like white skin, and remarkable powers that enabled miracles. Hatshepsut's beautiful mortuary temple at Delabari, a wall relief depicting her as being born of the god Amun, who appoints her as the future ruler of Egypt. However, my opinion, most likely Hatshepsut was deified as this goddess mother from even further ancient ancestors. And I'm going to tell you where I think she came from. Uh, This is who I think Semiramis really is. As of 2012, with the excavation of artifacts in the Irihor tomb, archaeologists confirm Irihor is the oldest remains of possibly the first ruler of the Old Kingdom. Irihor is the earliest ruler of Egypt, known by name, and is sometimes cited as the earliest living historical person known by name. Prior to the ancient discovery, hieroglyphs have been found with his name recorded, And yet there's been a lot of speculation over the translation of his name. But in the 1990s, Werner Kaiser and Gunter Dreyer translated Irie Hoare's name as Companion of Horus. This goes straight to the heart of the Isis Horus set pagan worship. Irie Hoare is likely the offspring of a goddess deity, Circuit. In the art of ancient Egypt, Circuit was shown as a scorpion and a symbol found on the earliest artifacts of the culture, such as Nakeda III, or as a woman with a scorpion on her head. Although Circuit does not appear to have had any temples, she had a sizable number of priests in many communities, and Circuit was considered a highly important goddess, and sometimes she was considered by pharaohs to be their patron. Circuit claimed her mother to be a woman as the first-time creator. So I think that this circuit person is, I think circuit is the one. 
But she claimed to be that her mother was Neith. And Neith is supposedly this creator, this great creator. Um, and so she also claims that her father was Kanum, and she claimed him to be the creator of the bodies of human children, which she made at a potter's will from clay and placed on their mother's wombs. So all of this, to me, lines up with someone who probably did come from uh, uh, fallen angels. It seems to me that this Nyath and Kanum were fallen angels. Oh, and also... Um, Nyeth was considered to be the uh, goddess of the cosmos, fate, wisdom, water, rivers, mother's childbirth, hunting, weaving, and guess what? War. So yeah, this sounds like this this woman circuit came from angels. I believe she was the first the first fallen angel or the first Nephilim after the flood. To me, this this lines up perfectly everything that they found with the artifacts in the tombs everything of the legends the stories all lines up that this woman that i'm going to call from here on out in all my videos i'm going to call her semi ramus but just know i'm referring to circuit in daniel 10:13, the angel gabriel tells how the prince of persia withstood him for 21 days and the archangel michael had to help restrain the demon of the prince of persia until the end times well i think this da demon was once a human whose dna was compromised by this circuit semiramus bloodline much like nimrod's so once these half-human, half-angel hybrids die, their spirits have nowhere to roam. So that's what they do. They, um, they just roam the earth as demons. And I think the likely contender for the demon the archangels wrestled were none other than Noah's great-grandson, Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz was the grandson of no Gomer. And it was from this former Persian prince, the nation of Germany and its people came about. It's through this bloodline of Gomer that we continue to wrestle with the banking, religious, social, pharmaceutical, educational, and every facet of our lives, spiritual assaults. So, I'm going to bring this in closer to our timeline. And we're going to explore how modern Europe's roots set the stage for this final act of world history that we're in right now. So, we're going to go to the 16th century in Western Europe. and that time, it proved to be a time of political and religious turmoil. The 17th century proved to be equally tumultuous for Central Europe. And just like in England, France, and the Netherlands in the century before, the disputes over religion in Central Europe in the 17th century usually served as thinly veiled disguises for political issues and territorial disputes and concerns over land and boundaries. Well, as nations jockeyed for political power and the title of Europe's premier state, monarchs did whatever 
they thought was necessary to improve their position, expand their borders, and, of course, further their own interests. So some monarchs sided with traditional enemies for their own gain, and some even supported other religions just to get whatever they wanted for themselves and their nations. One of the major players in the drama that unfolded during the 17th century was not a state per se, but was an empire, sort of. The Holy Roman Empire, that centuries-old entity that played such a pivotal role in so many political and religious affairs throughout European history, once again found itself in the thick of things during the 17th century. The Holy Roman Empire, although a political and religious force, didn't really qualify as a European nation. It had no real geographical boundaries, no official census records for its populations. So historians debated when the empire began and what its true nature was. There have been debates on the nature and responsibilities of the emperor and the extent of his political powers. But in short, the Holy Roman Empire and the position of the Holy Roman Empire were as much theoretical as practical. Well, the origins of the empire trace back to the year 800 or maybe even a few years before when Pope Leo III became Pope in 795. Quite a few opponents, especially among the nobility, worked to have him removed and finally deposed him. Leo III appealed to Charlemagne, who was the king of the Franks and the undisputed greatest secular power in Europe at that time. Charlemagne's advisors suggested that no man could question the authority of the Pope and Charlemagne agreed. He traveled to Rome and put down the rebellion against Leo. Well, 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 on Christmas Day. What a special day for those folks. In the year 800, Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne Imperator Romanet. Roman Rom or Emperor of the Romans. And the legend says that Charlemagne never would have entered the church where Leo crowned him had he known that Leo was going to give him such a crown and title. Historians disagree over the nature of the title. Some think that the title was meant as an honorary title with really no power, while others um, insist that the Pope created a new secular arm of Rome with the title. Either way, the first imperator, Roman Rum, since the fall of Rome in 476, was back in action. Interestingly, though, Charlemagne never referred to himself as Holy Roman Emperor or even as Emperor of the Romans. Rather, Charlemagne considered himself Imperator Roman Rum Gubernams Imperium or Emperor Ruling the Roman Empire. Whether the Holy Roman Empire actually began in 800, it's, I mean, it can be debated, but the foundation had actually at least been laid there. Several Frankish kings after Charlemagne used the title but exercised little imperial authority. Then, after the assassination of an emperor in 924, the title remained unused for about 40 years. Probably the actual and practical beginning of the Holy Roman Empire came in 962 when Pope John XII crowned the German king Otto as emperor. 
And this is where the Germans just take off. Though Pope John XII gave the crown to Otto the Great, John changed his mind later and actually tried to get rid of Otto. And as it turned out, Otto returned to Italy and deposed the very pope that crowned him emperor. Like Charlemagne, Otto traveled to Italy to save the pope and Rome from political unrest and instability. The pope crowned Otto emperor, then signed the diploma Ottonianum, which made the emperor the protector of the papal states, one of the independent states in Italy. With title and power in hand, Otto saved the papal states from its would-be conquerors under the German command. The 18th century philosopher Voltaire once commented that the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. In many ways, Voltaire couldn't have been writer. Dating back to the earliest days of the empire, the right to rule had nothing to do with holiness, piety, religious devotion, or anything of the sort. Beginning with Otto, the right to rule as emperor was a perk of being the German king. German was not yet a nation, but rather a kingdom comprised of smaller principalities. The German princes occasionally exercised the power to choose a king, but more often than not, they merely approved the succession of the next in line. Regardless, once the throne, the German kings also staked their claim as the next emperor. Most German kings ultimately were crowned emperor, though popes occasionally chose not to crown a German king emperor because of disputes regarding the king's ascension. The designation of both the emperor and the empire as holy had nothing to do with the spiritual nature of the emperors themselves. It simply an, uh, implied an alliance with the church and the fact that the emperors were to be defenders of the Roman Empire faith and the church. In 1338, the German electors declared that they and they alone had the right to choose the emperor without input of the pope. The pope did still perform the coronation of the emperor, though. This system prevailed until the coronation of Charles V in 1530, after which all such coronations took place in Germany rather than in Italy. While that might seem to finally make the use of the term Roman Empire somewhat problematic, the Roman part of the title had never had anything to do with the German kings being chosen or by crown, being crowned in Rome. Beginning with Charlemagne's family or the Carolinian dynasty, as it was known, the kings maintained that the Roman Empire had not ceased to exist in 476 when Augustus Romulus abdicted to barbarian invaders. Rather, the Carolinians argued, the empire had simply been suspended for several hundred years. Although that reasoning made the Holy Roman Empire Roman in their minds, the empire actually was not Roman per se. In theory, the Holy Roman Emperor ruled an empire comprised of all Western Christians. This wasn't too much of a stretch, initially because Charlemagne had his Franks organized into a kingdom, the only organized state in Europe. Only after he centralized the government in Germany did other modern states form across the continent. These states were far more cohesive than any empire perceived by the emperor or the pope, and the monarchs weren't always excited about recognizing someone else's authority over their lands. The loyalties of these peoples did not lie with the emperors unless the nobles were granted titles within the empire. 
As the centuries passed, the Holy Roman emperors found themselves granting more and more land titles and rights to nobility all over the continent. As the emperors gave away these things, the strength of the empire decreased. A true empire, the Holy Roman Empire, was not. In theory, the relationship between the emperor and the pope seemed mutually beneficial. By stroking the ego of a German king and bestowing a title, the Pope gained a powerful ally with an army committed to defending the Church, the Papacy, and the Papal States. Furthermore, the Pope had a far-reaching political arm with which he could enforce all things Papal throughout pagan Christendom. The Emperor, in exchange for a vow of loyalty and a commitment to be the defender of the faith, received a nifty crown, a great title, and secular authority over all of pagan Christendom, even in places where he wasn't the actual heredity king. Additionally, the Emperor received not only funding, but also papal authority for the use of his armies. In reality, though, the emperor's influence remained limited largely to Germany and the surrounding areas, in other words, to his own kingdom. In theory, the pope handled all spiritual matters that affected pagan Christendom, while the emperors handled all things secular or political. The cooperation, though, was not exactly the union of church and states, seemed very promising for both parties. However, the line between political and secular issues frequently blurred or disappeared altogether. Popes often failed to see eye to eye with the emperors, and emperors occasionally appointed church officials in a practice known as investiture, and that never went over very well with the papacy. Disputes over secular authority in Italy caused concerns. German emperors often found themselves in conflicts of interest when trying to balance ruling Germany as king and ruling pagan Christendom as emperor. On more than one occasion, the conflict between pope and emperor intensified to the point that the pope actually excommunicated the Holy Roman Emperor. To say that the relationship between church and state was tenuous at times could be an understatement. On the other hand, imperial and papal interests occasionally fell neatly in line, particularly during the Reformation and the Catholic or Counter-Reformation. Europe's most powerful family, the Habsburgs, may not have won any popularity contest during their day, but they certainly had everyone's attention. Though they began with a relatively small sphere of influence, the Habsburgs grew into perhaps the most influential family in all of Europe outside of the Medici family of Italy. The power of the Habsburg family culminated with Charles, son of Philip Habsburg and maternal grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella. Look for future podcasts where I will take this offspring of the black nobility and show their Nephilim connection to Semiramis and Astrozoarism cult worship and how it all ties into a nice little bow with the Habsburgs. But just stay tuned for it because I've been working really hard. I've got so much information. I'd love to put it in this video today, but it would be a four-hour video. or I'm sorry, not video, podcast. Well, anyway, back to Charles. Born in Madrid, but not truly having a place to call home, Charles V once said, I speak Spanish to God, Italian to women, French to men, and German to my horse. 
Charles was arguably the first true king of Spain, since previously Spain had actually consisted of the smaller states of Aragon and Castile. Charles went on to become Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. While Charles V was a Habsburg by birth, he wasn't German. In fact, it's hard to say what nationality Charles was. Regardless, Charles put the Habsburg family in a position to be powerful in Spain and Germany and claim the title of Europe's most powerful family. Most family trees of European ruling families after the Middle Ages were intertwined with those of other ruling families, and the Habsburgs were no exception. Ruling families often arranged marriages between their children, creating political and economic unions that, in theory, would be beneficial for both families. These unions are the mafia black nobility we are subjected to today. A family who ruled one country often had children, grandchildren, and cousins permanently linked to other countries all over the continent. The Habsburgs family tree epitomized the family tree linked to other families and other countries. Both Charles V and his brother Ferdinand, who later became Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand I, were grandsons of Ferdinand and Isabella who sponsored Columbus. When Charles, who was old and tired, abdicted, he gave his brother Ferdinand the empire and he gave Spain to his son Philip. Ferdinand's son, Maximilian II, as well as two of Maximilian's sons, Rudolf and Matthias, upheld the family tradition and went on to become Holy Roman Emperor too. Literally, everything stayed in the family as Maximilian II married Maria, a daughter of his uncle Charles V. After Maximilian's two sons became emperor, his third son, Maximilian III, helped another Habsburg, the intensely Catholic Ferdinand of Styria, became Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II. The son of Ferdinand II also ascended to the throne of the Holy Roman Empire and became Ferdinand III. One of the daughters of Maximilian II married Philip III of Spain, grandson of Charles V and son of Philip II. Later, Philip IV of Spain married the daughter of King Henry IV of France. Wow, all in the family. In the grand scheme of European history, the lives of some of these people were of little importance historically, while others had great historical impact. However, The family tree with many far-reaching branches illustrates how complex and how interconnected the lives of the individuals and families of this era were. In the case of the Habsburgs, their importance can hardly be overstated. The family collectively controlled Spain, Spanish holdings in the New World, and parts of Italy and the Netherlands, along with Germany, Austria, Bohemia, Hungary, and more in Central and Western Europe. Furthermore, the Habsburgs had ties to other countries through marriage and through Catholicism. If an international incident occurred in Europe after the Middle Ages, the Habsburgs more than likely were involved either directly or indirectly and continue to be so today.